<clears throat> Whoa. Uh, oh, uh, Christina, can you... T- no, that's good. Is that good volume? Yeah. We've been playing with the volume this morning. Probably shouldn't be. Once Roger hears, he's probably listening. If he's listening now, he'd be like, oh, Joe, don't touch the volume. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, honey, could you give me a, a little lower in-house, uh, just a little bit lower, perf- perfect? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, uh, we're going to start turning your Bibles to Psalm 145. We're going to do something fun before we start. I guess we're starting, but it's going to be fun. And if you don't find it fun, make it fun. <laughs> All right. One, uh, 145, Psalm 145. So um, a lot of the Psalms, and as if you've been following along, we've been doing prayer, and in this section, prayer in the Psalms, using the Psalms as prayers. And which many of them are. But also, many of the Psalms are what is called an antiphony. Now, this comes, it's compound word, anti meaning other, and phone or phono meaning voice. So it's an other voice. And what these are is songs where the leader would sing the first line, we'll speak it, and then the audience or congregation would speak the second line. And we, there's a lot of there's a lot of songs that are like this in our culture. Uh, <clears throat> I remember doing this in uh, Catholic mass years ago as a kid, where the priests would say, um, you know, "Blessed is the Lord," and then we all be like, "Yeah, blessed is His name." You know, we'd be all bored. Uh, but <clears throat> uh, that's what these are. And so, where you are in Psalm 145 is the beginning of a section, which is the end of the Psalms, which are praise psalms. And there's a lot of praise psalms. There are psalms of songs of praise to God. And 46, 7, 8, 47, 48, 49, 50, 150, all begin with a psalm of praise, or praise the Lord, sorry. This one starts with a psalm of praise. So 145 <coughs> is like the first or introduction to these last five that are Psalms of David that all begin with praise the Lord. And every one of them, if you look at them, we'll look at at the last one to finish, they're antiphonies. So the, the, the guy, whoever would be leading the congregation in the synagogue or in the temple would speak the first line and the congregation would go praise the Lord. So let's try it out. So I'm going to read the first line, Psalm 145.1. It's a short one, and you're going to read back, all of you together, the second line. You ready? I will extol you, my God, O King. Uh, wow, that was lame. <laughs> all right, but it's our first time, right? It's like first time riding a bike, crash and burn. Okay. We'll try it again. I'll read the first line. I will extol you, my God, O King. Nice. Every day I will bless you. It really does have a Catholic feel to it, doesn't it? Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. 
One generation shall praise your works to another. On the glorious splendor of your majesty. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. They shall, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. Well, it's good that you all had the same translation. At least it sounded like no. What do you, you don't? What do you guys have? Oh, we have King Jamer. They let you in here with a King James. The King James is a fine, fine translation. It's very good. It's, it's got it. It's got its issues in places, but it's a fine translation. So you guys had. I didn't even think of that actually. All right, so look at Psalm 150. I'll spare you that again. But this, uh, I, this was the, the psalm reading yesterday on the Bible reading. It's the, the last one. And uh, I figured we'd read this before we start to sing because that's what this is about. I, I think it would, you know, we sound, it sounds almost like a Gregorian chant when you're just saying it almost, but... If we were singing those lines and you were singing back and we had a, you know, some kind of musical score to it, I think it would sound just quite wonderful. Um, but I wish I, I wish I was musically minded enough to write songs to these things that I'm just not. Uh, so Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary. That's here. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. That's outside. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with strings, instruments, and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And the whole congregation would say, Praise the Lord. Right? It's, and, and that's what we're here for. Right? This is... Church is not meant to be procedural, mechanical. I think we can get into that. Uh, the most important thing about church, and I, the more I read and study about what church should be, it is the uh, <clears throat> the communication of God's word uh, in a in a sound and biblical fashion. That's the most important thing about our gathering. But it's not the only thing. It's our our unity. Our service of one another, as we uh, looked at this week in our study of the Psalms, that we <coughs> seek to serve one another and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In other words, our unity and love, and that we're actually concerned for one another. You know, who, you know it's, I'm not here just for me, although you are here for you, that's true. But I'm, I'm here for others as well in the body of Christ. And... Sometimes in doctrinal assemblies, that's get, that gets lost because we're so concerned about doctrine, and we should be, that we you know, forego the rest. We should be concerned about doctrine and include all the rest. Even if it plays a minor role, don't let it go. And so, and that's, so let's open up in prayer, and then we'll sing. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, our great God in heaven, thank you for all that you are. Thank you for giving us your Son, Jesus Christ, our most precious gift by far. Thank you for his sacrifice, his willingness 
to take upon himself the most awful suffering. And he is the only one who truly knows pure suffering because he is sinless. He never shirked a duty. He never complained. He never stood in fear. He never sinned. And so the suffering upon him was pure. And yet he willingly took it so that we could be saved. His enemies are sinners fallen, yet he loved every one of us and died for every one of us. And so, Father, this morning as we look at suffering, and we know by your scripture, by your word, that all of us are destined to suffer in this life. And you have allowed this, you have willed it, and therefore, Father, we look to your word in these psalms to find the ways through it. And there is like everything you do, Father, there is purpose in it. And let us see that purpose, which is abundant for our blessing, in fact. And so we ask, Father, in Christ's name, amen. All rise, please. Yeah. 
Oh, 
Give me an in-house lower. Yeah, down to there. That's probably about good. Test one. Oh, that's good, too. Yeah, we're good. Perfect. Thanks. Gotta love this cordless mic. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for coming. First <laughs> uh, Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Uh, Christina, just a little hair lower, just you know, because I'm going to get preachy. I can feel it. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Great. Thank you. First Peter chapter three. That's perfect. So um, now we've been looking at Chris uh, hair higher. I'm sorry. I know it's a pain in the butt. We adjusted. That's perfect. Thank you. We adjusted before, but things change <laughs> all the time. Anyway. Um, so, in terms of where we've been to this point, uh, we started the doctrine of prayer with a number of, you know, uh, intro, introductory things. And I guess it's the way that my brain works is my brain does not work in outline form. Um, but uh, so I kind of go at these things from different angles until, you know, I'm satisfied that we've covered everything. But that, to me, that's what life is. Life is not in outline form either. Uh, so we started with pray continually, which is the reason why we started uh, the doctrine of prayer, was that at the end of Ephesians, when we finished Ephesians, that's the last thing that Paul speaks of before he closes the letter, is to pray continually. And so this, and we show that our life uh, of our spiritual lives demands communication with the Father all the time. I don't mean every second of every day, all right? But this means when necessary, which is a lot. That whether they're the, as I call them, the flare prayer from anywhere, a little five-minute thing that you need, uh, the inner closet prayer with, you know, that's always to the Father, uh, that uh, prayer time that you have that you've set aside, uh, highly recommend in the morning before you do anything. Uh, and that we need to be in constant communication with our Father. And we see it in the Gospels. Our Lord was all the time. And so we need to be. We, this life is meant to be, as we're his children, sons and daughters. We need to be in constant communication. We also there noted from that that we seek God in prayer. Prayer is also a learning process in which you're seeking what the truth is. Uh, you're asking him of that, pursuing that. And we saw that in multiple places, that <clears throat> we seek to know God, seek to be closer to him, seek to understand, you know, what, why is it that there's a disconnect in my, in my soul uh, between certain aspects of his word in my lifestyle? Uh, you know, what, what I live and what I'm supposed to do in some parts of my life, they're more matched up than others. Uh, and you're seeking in prayer solutions. And when you're seeking solutions, you're seeking truth. And you're seeking truth, you're seeking God. Then we noted what it means to pray in the name of the Son. It's not just something we tack on at the end of the prayer. Just to say it. <clears throat> We're there in his name 
because he is our mediator. We're there in his name because, it be, because of him and his work on the cross that we can be there in God's throne room. But we're also there in, in the name of someone meant that you represented someone. Uh, you could never approach a king in the ancient world unless you had a letter of recommendation. And in his name is a letter of recommendation. So we represent him and therefore we must obey him. And hence, this is why Jesus could say, anything you ask in my name, my father will do. We say, well, I asked to win the lottery. It didn't work. But <clears throat> it's in his name means in his will. If you're before the father asking for selfish things, you're not there in the name of the Lord. So it's not just something we say. It, it has actual meaning. And we have to remember that when we're praying. And for me personally, now when I close my prayer in his name, I take a minute to think of that very thing. It makes all the difference. We saw the examples in prayer of Augustine. Uh, sorry, I almost said Augustine again. Uh, in, 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 uh, in university, they don't like Augustine. They like Augustine. They say Augustine is a place in Florida. I'm like, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> that's at Corbin University. Uh, have, you, have you guys heard that? I have. So anyway... Uh, we looked at examples of Augustine and Luther, and uh, they're, they're excellent, excellent examples. Not that we're to follow them exactly what they do, but they write a lot about their personal prayer life. We looked at that. And then we jumped into the prayers that are in the Psalms. First, the introduction, which is Psalms 1 and 2, which is the, the introduction to the whole Psalter. And we looked at those, and we saw that in those reveals to us that before you head off into prayer, which is the rest of the Psalms, the, the final 148, Psalms 1 and 2 tell us that prayer, just like our spiritual lives, is about the glorification of Christ, not the glorification of us. <clears throat> so it keeps us in line in the boundaries of what God wants us to pray, what is right to pray for. Because when I'm asking for something, is it to the glory of Christ in my life, or is it selfish? Is it just to me? And this is in the book of James. We'll see this later on. That James says you ask and you don't receive because you seek to spend it on yourself. And <clears throat> first off, that's not in his name. And that's also not to his glory, which the two should be one and the same. Then we looked at themes in the psalm, and we saw considering creation. Uh, there's a lot of psalms about creation and considering our place in creation and what that means to us. God is the creator of all things, this incredible universe that we live in, and <clears throat> that reveals his mighty power, as well as the fact that in Psalm 8, that little bit in this magnificent, huge universe that has mass and energy beyond what we could calculate is little bitty old us right here on this little bitty old rock of a planet in a little bitty, <laughs> sorry, a galaxy in this enormous universe. And here we are. And I love how, uh, I think it was Lewis who said now, we're these little bitty things and then we stand in front of a mirror and, you know, wonder how good we look or something like that. And, you know, we're just a speck of dust in the huge cosmos. Uh, but God's made one thing in his image out of the whole thing. 
and it's you and me. And so there's a plan for one creature, one creation in it all. I mean, there's a plan for the whole thing. But God became us. He didn't he became a man. He didn't become an angel. He didn't become some super magnificent display of cosmic energy or anything like that. He became a human being. And so, in God's creation, puts us in, a, in our place, but also reveals that God has a magnificent and wonderful plan for such insignificant little beings. Then we saw keeping the law in the Psalms. There's several on that. Psalm 19 specifically which, uh, by the way, was C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm in the whole Psalter. He said, it was, he said it was some of the best literature ever written in all of mankind. And he would know. Psalm 19. Uh, then remembering God's history. You know, what has God done? And uh, we'll see that in today's psalm, that David looks back at God's history in his own life and says, well, you know, pretty much God came through for me before. Why won't he do it again? Then we looked at the church, and then finally, we looked at good things. Our last class was about the fact that you can pray. It's not wrong for us to pray for good, material, earthly things, as long as you, you care for God more than you care for the things, that you love God more than you love the things. And this will give you capacity for things. So next, and this is a wonderful topic. It, it's always a wonderful topic, but it's suffering. The next one. Is suffering. <coughs> suffering is a famous subject in the Psalms. Many, many second. <coughs> suffering is a fact of the Christian life. First and foremost, none of us are going to get through this thing alive. Sorry. Uh, suffering is a fact of the Christian life. It is a fact that all of us must experience. The measure and extent of that suffering is different. That's why we can't be looking at others. Like Peter said, what about John? Remember that in the end of the Gospel of John? Because Jesus told Peter that he was going to be taken somewhere he didn't want to go and he was going to die. He was going to be martyred. And he said, well, what the heck about John? And it's not. And Jesus said, you follow me. What I do with John is none of your business. We're going to see people suffer less than us and more. And in fact, we can't tell how much they're suffering anyway. So the measure and extent of it in a believer's life differs, and that's by God's sovereign design. But it is given, it is a given for all believers. If we, so we say, well, we won't follow the Lord and we'll avoid all the suffering. You're going to suffer for a different way, and that suffering is not going to bring any glory to God nor improve your life. If we choose not to follow the Lord and his word, we'll suffer from the results of sin. Basically, boiled down to, that's what it is. We sin because we won't follow him. We sin more because we won't follow him. We won't strive to follow his word and his way and his spirit. And we sin more. And we're, we become selfish and tied up in ourselves. And we reap, this, we reap what we sow. Uh, <clears throat> Paul wrote that you reap to the flesh, you, sorry, you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If we choose to follow the Lord, we'll suffer at the hands of the world. And the resistance of the flesh. There's a suffering in temptation. that The flesh does not want to go along. So it's going to try and pull you back, pull you off the path. And there's suffering in that as well. The one who doesn't follow the Lord doesn't know that suffering. Resistance of sin. 
It's extremely hard. This, and that's another C.S. Lewis. I love his chapter on that, Mere Christianity, that you only know the strength of something you fight. If you lie down in the wind, you don't know the strength of the wind. The later one, following the Lord, glorifies God and promised in the Scripture that there's great reward. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are made for this life. Now, why should I follow this life? First and foremost, you were created a new creature in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for this life. It's Romans 8. We're designed to walk by the Spirit. That's our design. You know, it's like a race car putt-putting around, I don't know, somewhere (laughs) in the city. It's not designed for that. It's designed to go. And we're designed for the spiritual life if we're believers in Christ. Uh, And if we, the fact that we're designed for it, and this is a very true, and all of us know it, and it's very important to be reminded of, that since I'm made for the life of Christ, which is eternal life, I will never truly be at ease or fulfilled if I don't live it. There will always be something wrong. I will always lack. I will always be searching, seeking for comfort, for happiness. Uh, Yeah, I mean, all of us not following the Lord, we have happiness here and there. Joy comes, joy goes. And we're deceiving ourselves. We think the joy that is temporary this time, finally it's going to last. And it doesn't. And again and again. It's like a cycle of a washing machine. You go around and around. And we're searching. And the thing is, is God is showing us that there's only peace in one place. And we got to take a risk on it. I say this to me as much as to anybody. We have to take a risk on it and give it our all. And we're designed for that. So we'll never truly be at ease and fulfilled until we've given all of ourselves to Christ in obedience. So who of us do that naturally, easily, right at the start of salvation? It almost seems like the Apostle Paul did. But, I, but what's wonderful about Paul is Paul goes right into service and he doesn't stop. Uh, but then Paul gives us Romans 7. What I want to do, I don't do. And that is not about his past. Even the Greek itself, which I've learned this last year, it shows us that that is Paul when he presently writes it. I struggle, he says. I am a wretched man. But then he rolls right into Romans 8 and says, look, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we are designed to walk by the Spirit, and he is tenacious about it. He won't bow down to the flesh as much as he fights it, or it fights him. So look at 1 Peter 3.17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. See, uh, I, always, I always like to comment on how complex the theology of the apostles are. <laughs> right? It's pretty simple. As, uh, somebody posted on Facebook that I saw this week a quote from uh, Thomas Sowell. I think I mentioned it Thursday. that He says, the truth is simple. It's the lies that are complicated. They complicate them so people get confused. But the truth 
very simple. It's right to the point, right to the heart of the matter. And here, Peter's saying, look, you're going to suffer one way or the other. It's better if you suffer for doing what's right. And uh, Peter, we appreciate that. So, uh, moving on to the Psalms. Here's a quote from Luther. He says, quote, Where do you find more miserable, more wretched, more depressing words than in the Psalms of Lamentation? Wow, right? There you see in the heart of all the saints as into death, even as into hell, how sad and dark it is there in every wretched corner of the wrath of God. Now, I consider Luther to be an excellent theologian. He is. The more I read of him, the more impressed I am by his work. But I think he's a little dark. <laughs> so, needless to say, and as he, as he, his years progressed, as he got older, he got darker. And my theory on that is that he was so persecuted that after, like, and you see this in other theologians, too, that after they've been persecuted themselves and for their doctrine and for their teaching, they find themselves defending themselves more than living with God, than living the life of God. They get And Luther got angry, it seems. Uh, in his writing, it seems to tend that way. But there's a reason why I put this on. It, you know, I, I would not have written anything like this. But it also reminds us that the suffering we see in the Scripture is not like the suffering I had yesterday, where I went to Safeway with a, with a list, and there was an item that was important to me that they didn't have. And I looked, and I'm looking in the shelf, I'm looking all around, I'm like, come on, this is America. <laughs> How do you not have this? Sim-? It's a common thing. They didn't have it. You would have had quiche this morning if I found that item. So, anyway, I found another item. Uh, That's not suffering, right? That's not the suffering of the Bible, I would say. You know, if the recession comes, uh, amazingly to all of us, the people still voted in Democrats after living through this hell. Not hell. Luther says hell. This is more like purgatory. Uh, But, you know... they still, let's vote them back in. All right, idiot. You're just going to get what you asked for. But sadly, the rest of us are going to get what they asked for. Okay. Is it really suffering? It does, you know, God is in control of all history. And as I, I've reminded you guys and some other people I met when we were uh, out in Washington, that God promised in, the, in Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, when Israel got bad, that he was going to give them leaders who were children. He promised it. He said, your leaders are going to be children. Behold, they are. They're not smart people. Um, So the world brings suffering upon Christians, and we're promised it. We can't be shocked by this. And I I didn't put that verse on there, but that's in first. Well, you're right there. 1 Peter 4, I I could almost say it by memory, but I shouldn't promise that. Look at 4.12. Don't be surprised, right? Beloved, 
I would have missed that one. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. It's promised, and it has been promised. Our Lord went through it. Every apostle went through it. Every Christian who follows the Lord has gone through it. And promise in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Notice it's for his sake. And so getting back to Luther's quote, which I meant to say, is that the suffering of the Christian life is definitely intense. You feel it. And the psalmists feel it. What I love about these psalms is they don't coat their suffering with all this flowery religious language. They're basically going, this hurts. Where the heck are you, Lord? They fight with him. They throw in, this is crazy, I won't get to it so I can summarize. They throw his promises in his own face. And, and I find, what I find from that is not because God adopted these words into his very word. The words of these people, like David, he took them and adopted them into his own word. As if to say to us, yes, challenge me with my promises. And by so doing, we've grabbed hold of the promises so much and we believe them so much that we'll actually present them before God and say, this is your promise. Right? Remember when Moses prays that God wouldn't destroy Israel? He said, look, the, the, all the nations are going to think that you couldn't deliver your people if you do this. And God said, you know what, Moses? You're right. I'll wait. He told Moses, I'll make you and Mike, Mike keeps going on. <clears throat> of course, I'll make a great nation out of you and I'll, I'll remove them. Moses said, you can't do that, Lord. You've already made promises that the whole world knows. And in this, we have such confidence in his promises and confidence in his covenants that we're able to actually say to God, look, you promised this. And who wouldn't, what father wouldn't be proud of their child to come to his father or come to his dad and say, look, this is what the truth is, dad. You taught that to me. Be like, man, that's awesome. It's got to be awesome. <clears throat> it's a whole lot better than like, eh, whatever, you know, I don't care. Like most kids. Just kidding. John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's a promise. So we got a lot of work to do. Not all of us get the same kind or the same amount, but all of us are destined for it. To be sure, all of us sin. And by the way, there's plenty of psalms about that. I'm sinning and it hurts for my stupid decisions. My sin. <clears throat> Those are mostly from David. <laughs> yeah, he's like that Bathsheba thing. Whew, wrong decision. He never, he never fully recovered from it. Never. His life was changed forever because of that. And I, I think that has a lot to do with his, what his position was as king. To be sure, all of us sin, and so all of us will suffer for bad decisions. Every sin comes with its own deposit of suffering. Every one of them hurt us. Uh, in, in suffering in our souls, in our bodies, and in the lives of others. Every one. Now, you say, well, you know what, pastor? That means I'm going to stop sinning. Oh, good luck with that. 
You're not. You're not going to be able to stop. But you must overcome. All of us must. It's, you know, <clears throat> not to sugarcoat it with theology, but the problem with mankind is sin. And the problem with each of us is sin, is when we don't obey. And so by, by growth, by faith, by, by striving and learning, we need to minimize sin as much as we possibly can in following Christ in the good things. So here's suffering in the Psalms. Oh, did I get, I put that one in. Oh, all right. Romans 8.17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. <clears throat> suffering on display. Psalm 13, you get, we'll look at that one uh, this morning. Go to Psalm 13. Hopefully we can get just two of these in. If you just got nervous and said, oh God, we're going to be here until like forever. We'll read all these Psalms. We're not going to read them all. Psalm 13, 31, 35, 38, 41, 44, 54, 55, 56, 61, 74, 79, 86, 88, 102, 105, and more. There's more. All of them. So what does this tell you? Yeah, we're destined for suffering. It's not all, and, and as we know, it's not all the time. And how much of it depends on the, on the will of God. But, and, and there's a mixture here. Suffering for sin, suffering undeservedly. Right, so now, as Peter wisely told us, we want to suffer for doing what's right, not for doing what's wrong. Uh, <clears throat> so, maybe... You know, like a, like a Hallmark card, we want the Psalms to deal with the aspects of suffering in some kind of pious language. Like as I wrote, I, I couldn't, this is the pious language I came up with. Though I suffer, Lord, I will take it all with the grace of heaven and the purity of the stellar light of the universe and the happy smile of heaven's angels. See, it's not even good. I can't do that. I can't even write that stuff. Because it's not real, right? and the psalmists are very real. Like the Bible as a whole, it spills out on all its pages the ugly deeds of God's creation, man. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's one of the, it's always one of the things stated as the proof of the scriptures are de- definitely genuine. There's there's greater proofs than this that the scriptures are genuine. But uh, <clears throat> if you were trying to uh, fool people with a religion, you would not write a book like this. Nobody would. Uh, to Here's God's people on pay, on you know, on ink on paper. And you look at them, you're like, whoa, man. What about God's nation Israel? How'd they do? It's terrible. Right? What'd they do to our Lord? Terrible. Jews and Gentiles. How'd the apostles turn out? Are they all great? You have the great apostle Peter denying that he even knows the Lord. Why is that on the paper? It's because it's real. Now, come on. How is that possible? In all suffering, there is an attack on faith. All suffering is an attack on faith. All right? Why? Because it hurts. And what do we want to do with hurt? Crawl right into ourselves. We want the pain pushes us towards some anesthetic. The anesthetic may be drugs or alcohol. Or it may be complaining. 
You know, it's complaining is like a release valve. Maybe I, I want to gossip to people about it, about what he did and what she did to me, or blame others. It's a release valve, right? It's so we're pushed, and that's a, that's a lack of faith. I'm forgetting that this suffering has come upon me for one or two reasons, for my sin, or it's undeserved, but both of them are on me. And both of them are my responsibility to overcome by faith. So if it's sin, I confess and recover. If it's undeserved, I do what these guys did. <laughs> and it seems in every one of them, step one is not good. And I think, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, but look at Psalm 13, verse 1. For the choir director of Psalm of David how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Don't we all kind of do this? Maybe it's for a second or two, maybe longer. I don't know. I do this. But this, uh, the, first par- the first stanza is not the end of the psalm, but the first stanza, David's very open. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? having sorrow in my heart all the day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? <clears throat> and this we can imagine David here is in the wilderness fleeing from Saul for months and months. He fleed Saul for 10 years. Not all of it was in the wilderness, but a great deal of it was. An exposure without food, water at times. Uh, and, and always his life being in danger. Saul was trying to kill him. He was away from his home, away from his wife, parents. <laughs> All right. I'm going to change batteries. You guys can sing some psalms or something. I'm not going to get angry. There we go. All right. So um, uh, David is in a difficult place. He's away from civilization. He's away from the comforts of life. How long, O Lord? Instead of easy resignation, we find in David's voice struggle, anxiety, and doubt. How long? don't, Don't we all respond in like fashion, at least maybe for a little while at the start? But fortunately for David and for us, it's not the end of the story. We may doubt, is the test over? We used to always say this, and it was always taught to me. Look, if, if you fail at the start of a test, does the test go away? No, it's still there, and you're forgiven. So God's saying, pick yourself up, take your thumb out of your mouth, pouting in the nursery, <laughs> stand up, right? gird yourself like a man or a woman of God, and face this. There's a reason for it. And so what does David do? Prayer. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. You see in the second stanza, David turns to prayer and he appeals to God. 
He's very honest with God. If you don't come through, I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. In other words, I can't take this much longer. Now, of course, God knows how long David can take it. And he may chuckle at us when we say that. But David openly says this. And God, ado- don't forget, God adopts this into his word. You know, it, it's not justifying the fact that we're, uh, you know, in all, it's not really complaining, is it? He's just like, look, I don't think I can take this much longer. And God says what? I understand. Psalm 103, I know that you are but dust. That's how, that's how it's worded, but dust. Uh, I know that you are but, pause, dust. Uh, and in Hebrews 4, I sympathize with your weaknesses as your high priest. I've been tempted in all things, yet without sin, but I sympathize with your weaknesses. God is very real with us. And so, <clears throat> there, then, now uh, what he wants is for God to enlighten his eyes. Right? See, notice the prayer. This isn't, you don't hear here, uh, take it away. Get me out of the wilderness. Put me, he, David's already been anointed king. Put me on the throne. Kill Saul. You know, get, this, get my suffering over. He doesn't ask for that. He asks for his eyes to be enlightened. How, what are you doing here, Lord? How is this a part? All of us, by the way, are a small part in the entire drama of God's redemptive history. From Genesis to Revelation is the redemption of man. At the very end, come Lord quickly. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And Jesus says at the very end of Revelation, I'm coming quickly. And we're all like, uh, quickly, huh? 2,000 years, <laughs> that's quickly. 1,000 years is a day to the Lord. But anyway, you know, and he, each of us, we're a small part, but we're an important part. Because God, everything God creates and makes has a purpose. You and I have extremely important parts here. But if we don't fulfill our part, the whole thing doesn't fall apart. You're one in a million, maybe a billion Christians throughout all of history. We'll take all believers from the beginning to the end. You're a tiny piece. So if you don't fulfill your end... You're not going to, things aren't going to change, but you have an opportunity to play the role that God has planned for you. That little page in his book. By the way, uh, I forget what psalm it is. I think it's 139, but God says every day that we have is written in his book. Everything I've done, David said, before I was even born, you wrote in your book. And, you know, what's that going to, what's that going to be? What's, what God going to write? So now in the third stanza, David finds the fruit of his prayer. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So the total change from stanza one to stanza three in the middle is prayer. He has sought God's clarity. Earnestly sought to have his eyes enlightened and they were. Notice in verse 5, it's in the past tense. I have trusted in your loving kindness. Meaning David here is doing what we saw in other Psalms. He's applying God's history. But this is the history of God in his own life. That he's looking back and saying, look, I have trusted in you before. 
How is that worked out? And that's the last line. Because you have dealt, has dealt, right? It's past tense. He has dealt bountifully with me. And what does this cause David to do? And that's in the middle there in 5b and 6a. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. He rejoices in God's deliverance. He sings to the Lord, but he's still in it. He's still in the wilderness. God hadn't gotten him out. It's just that now he sees. And this is what God wants for us. Not to be delivered you know, from the suffering itself. That will come. But to be delivered in the suffering. There's a, a word for that. And you guys know this word because we, we harped on it for a long time. If you know hupomone in Greek, it means perseverance or endurance or patience. There's a great passage in Romans 5 about that, how suffering gives us proving character and proving character patience. All right, let's go to Psalm 44. It's enough time for this one. Now, in Psalm 44, we have a situation of undeserved suffering. So, getting back again, we're talking about prayer. If you were, now, there's so many psalms on suffering that if you were, if you're going through something and you're like, I want to read a psalm about that will help me or to help me pray about, pray properly about the suffering that I'm going through, you could pretty much take your Bible, open to the middle, oh, I got Proverbs, open to the middle, and you're at the psalms, you could probably close your eyes and touch the page, and you're going to be really close to a psalm about suffering because there's so many of them. But as soon as you find one, or if you remember these, you can go to these, meditate on them. Remember, that's what that word salah means. It's like 80 or 90 salahs throughout the Psalms. And it says, stop there and meditate on what you just read and, and start to pray and find what, that's exactly what David prays for here in Psalm 13 or there in Psalm 13 was that, that his eyes be enlightened so that he sees, again, what is my place in the whole scheme of God's redemptive history. And when I see that, I, I won't take my myself all that seriously. Like every like this, oh my God, this suffering, it's like the whole world must know. It, it's you know, it's again it's it well it depends I guess what it is, but um but definitely designed for our as Peter said, don't be surprised. It's designed for us. It's designed for us as Paul with the thorn in his flesh was designed to make Paul trust in God more. And that's what they're all designed to open our eyes and to see life, this life, eternal life, for what it really is. <clears throat> so now, uh, the, this psalmist in Psalm 44 declares that they have not, meaning Israel, forsaken the Lord. In so many cases, Israel did forsake the Lord but in this psalm, he declares that they hadn't. And so we'll take his word for it. But the enemies of Israel are defeating them. They haven't forsaken the Lord. They're not worshiping idols. They're following his law. But on the battlefield, they're losing. And uh, so he says in verse 4. Did I start in verse 4? Okay. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. I don't know why in my notes I started in verse 4. I don't want to do that now. 
Alright, let's read it from the top. Verse 1. Always read the title. A Maskil for the sons of Korah, for the choir director. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. Right, so that's the history of God. Is God faithful to Israel, up to you know, giving them the promised land, getting them through the wilderness, out of Egypt, of course. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. You planted them. That's in the promised land. You afflicted the peoples. You spread them abroad. For by their own sword, they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your right arm the, and the light of your presence, for you favored them. Right, so what was the victory of Israel about? That's it. The Lord gave them victory. None of them deserved it. And so and we, this would be a reminder to us that as you know, the Lord is going to give us the victory. It's not ours. And when we're following him and we find, as we pray, we overcome, we find our inner eyes, the eyes of our heart enlightened. Remember, Jesus said, the eye of your heart must be full of light. And that was that's the inner the inner person the inner man has to be full of light and that's technically full of him and then in verse four you are my king O God command victories for Jacob but then in verse nine if you skip down to verse nine yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our with our armies so he says you have rejected us. We have been following you, but we ha- you have rejected us. So it seems. Verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals, meaning a wilderness, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, will God not find this out? For he knows the secret of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so the psalmist, we will believe him. He's not lying. That we haven't forsaken you. We haven't forgotten you. And if we, even if we were secretly worshiping idols, wouldn't you see it? And yet, we're losing. Our armies are being crushed. You will not go out with us. What gives? So this has a flavor of Job to it, doesn't it? I, as Job said to his friends, I haven't sinned. I haven't sinned against the Lord and, 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 and Job demanded to know from God what this was. He demanded a hearing with God. He said, I, who can stand before you? It would be better if I wasn't born, Job said. Basically, I don't get it. And, and if you're, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if there aren't times where you say, I don't get it, then that means you don't get it. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 we're perplexed at times but he said we're not despairing it's just going to be there's things that God how can you figure out the mind of God and everything he does he does it and that's why we can't so Jesus said to us look you be like children and children follow their parents though they don't understand what the heck is going on follow me 
So this last line in 22, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Does it sound familiar? And it's quoted by Paul. So let's see that. Hold your place here. And we'll go to Romans 8. And we'll come back to 44. And that's that. We'll finish. Romans 8.35. See, because now knowing the context of the psalm helps us to understand what Paul is saying in Romans 8. Such a great chapter in the New Testament. And then we can apply this to our prayer lives. That where Paul is quoting this here, he is speaking of undeserved suffering. I haven't, I haven't been following idols, Lord. You know this. If I were secretly doing it, you would know. I haven't been given it. I'm not sinless. You know, Israel wasn't either. But I've been following you, and yet I keep losing this, and this goes wrong, and that goes wrong, and it seems like you're not with me at all. That's what the psalmist said. We're going out to battle and losing. And you and I can say, I've been living life and losing. And I've been following you with all my heart and soul. So Paul writes in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All right. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And we have to pluck this out and put it right back in Psalm 44 because he's not saying here that all of us are supposed to be dying all day. We're supposed to go back to the psalm and see where it is. And what this is is undeserved suffering. That's what it is. He could have wrote, we all suffer undeservedly. But Paul puts the quote, so we'll go back and look for it. And this is, so we go back to, wait a minute, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. The things that have come upon me, but I'm following the Lord. But yet, famine has come upon me. Famine, not in the way of uh, you know, the, the pie crusts weren't at Safeway yesterday. There's plenty of food there. <laughs> but I mean, something that I is needful for me, and it's gone. It's not there. Persecution, famine. Lord, I've been following you. What gives with this? Are you not with me? And then Paul says, "You remember Psalm 44." But and this is bookended by this passage. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And at the end, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? So what I'm going through, and I have no solutions, and it's perplexing, and I don't know when you're going to deliver, but I know you are. Does this in any way mean that you love me less or you've forgotten about me? No. You don't care anymore? No. No, 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 no. There's a purpose in this. A great one. And if, and if I give in to my fear, because it's a test of my faith every time, I'm going to miss 
this lesson. I'm going to miss it. And how many of them are you going to get before you exit this earth? There's a finite number. And look, we've all failed a bunch of these. I'll say, I have failed a bunch of these. Thank God I am still alive at the ripe old age of 30. (laughs) That I have plenty of time left to go through more. But I know that I have a finite time left. We all have a finite time left. And God will give us more of this. So that we can, like Paul said, I want to know fellowship with his suffering. So I can be conformed to his death. And it's only now that we get to do this in this life. In heaven, these things don't occur. But they happen now for us. And we must see this. Or we're just going to do the same old thing of complain and blame and, uh, and, and draw into ourselves, go toward sin, self-medicate, whatever we've been doing. We're just going to keep going back to it until at some point we wisen up and say, this is purposeful for me to see that nothing will separate me from the love of God. And so he continues, verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. I love how Paul does this. He uses these super superlatives. He could say we conquer, but no. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So when we go through the suffering, instead of looking to ourselves, who are we to look to? To the Lord. And then we'll remember, so are we going to do that immediately? If you do, bravo. Seriously, I I am rooting for you. I'm rooting for me. I'm rooting for me to do it. Like not even a moment of hesitation. But it's probably not going to happen. But I'm going to say, Lord, what is this? I won't swear. (laughs) Privately to the Lord, I kind of do a little bit. I say darn, you know, you can't use big swear words with God. But... You know, what in the world is this? What? And then, yeah, maybe I should pray. All right, maybe I should read. I should read some some scripture and pray. Do both. Read and pray. Pray and read. And then be reminded. And then ask. I mean, I think David hits it right on the head there. Give clarity to my eyes. And maybe that clarity, not maybe, certainly, that clarity will be Truths like this in Romans 8, that, look, believer, I am getting you to a point where you're going to see my love for you so deeply and so clearly that you're going to lose yourself in me. And when you do that, you're going to find life that I came to give you. Abundant life, that which is life indeed. But you're kind of blind to it now. So I'm going to help you out with your blindness. Which is painful surgery. Sometimes it is. 
So we, go back to Psalm 44. We'll look at the end. How do we overcome? Through Christ. I'm losing the battles. It looks like I'm losing the war. No, you are not ever losing the war. Ever. I overcome through Christ. He is, and by the way, he's the only one who truly knows what suffering is. And why? Because he never, what well, we talked a little bit ago about our release valves, complaining, gossiping, can't wait to tell Aunt Jenny, I don't know, who, who, who are you going to get on the phone with and, and chat and tell them about what he did and what she did and what they did. It's a release valve. We're not to gossip or slander anyone, by the way. Uh, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. We'll say, but I so want to talk about that. You go to the Lord. You can talk to him about it. Uh, my complaining, my bitterness, my chemicals, drugs or alcohol, whatever I'm going to use. And by the way, again, you know, alcohol is not against the Bible. We're not... Uh, as one of my, my friends at Corbin, now I have friend, I have twenty year old friends at Corbin University. It's kind of cool. I'm like, hey kids, what's up? You know, they're like, I know in their minds they're saying, what's up, Fogey, <laughs> the old timer. And he said, how do you stop a Baptist from drinking all your beer at your party? And the answer is, invite another Baptist. <clears throat> so yeah, it, it's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to be drunk. It's a sin to be overruled by drink. It's a sin to be overruled by drugs. Uh, it's a sin to be overruled by anything. It's not just that. We can be overruled by bitterness, by anger, by slander, by anything. And so we use these. We use these release valves. At least even in the front, we complain maybe. Christ never complained, never was afraid, never sinned. And so his suffering upon him was pure pain, like none of us have ever imagined. I'm not even talking about the cross for the sins of the world. That, that's on another plane. But just in everyday suffering, he suffered in pain that we can't imagine. He never sublimated. Sublimation is, uh, it means to substitute pain with something else to distract yourself. He never did that. So, how do we conquer through him who suffered it all? And how do we do that? Well, he's given us gifts. He's given us himself. And so, we're new creatures in Christ that are made for this life. If we weren't made for this life, we wouldn't have a hope of living it. But now we are. We're in him, so we're made for this life. And he gave us his word, so we can see the truth of this life. He's our mediator at the right hand of God, so he gave us prayer so that we can seek out this life in real time in fellowship with our Father, day in and day out, walking with God. And he gave us his Holy Spirit, the Helper, he called him, who is in us to guide us. And so when we set out to say, you know what? I'm going to do this right. I know that I have the Holy Spirit within to make it right. That's faith in the Holy Spirit within that if I obey, he's going to give me the power to accomplish all his good pleasure. There's a beautiful passage on that that's very clear in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So the right, get back to Psalm 44. 
Verse 23. Here's his prayer. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? It's great. That's why the Psalms are just so wonderfully refreshing. It's so very real. What do you mean, why do I sleep? Like, if I was God, I'd be like, shut up, Psalm 44. Who are you talking to? But, you know, it's, it's God relates to this. Yeah, I'm wait, I'm delaying. It sounds, it, you know, it looks like I'm sleeping. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us. And notice this, not for our sake, but for the sake of your loving kindness. Loving kindness, covenant love. So you still see in the end of the psalm, he's still pretty hopeless. He doesn't see a solution. But he resorts to prayer very openly and, and honestly. says, Lord, I don't know where you are or what you're doing if you're busy with something else, but you need to rise up and be our help. And again, he, and he applies, he's like throwing it in God's face. Your covenant promise. You promised to deliver Israel. Now get to it. And I can't imagine that God doesn't love this. And, and you can see here, one of the applications to suffering is that if you're going to find relief, You grab hold of God's promise and his covenant promise to you so tightly that you feel comfortable bringing it to God's throne and saying, look, you promised this. Right there, it says it. What are you doing? And it's a strengthening of our faith. So last point. Even when God's behavior is too difficult to grasp, even in the deepest hopelessness, God alone remains the one addressed. In all of these psalms of suffering, God is the one, obviously God is the one who was addressed. I don't think he would have included anything else in his word. But um, you know, it's, it's not an, an uh, appeal to people. It's not an appeal, it's not a self-pity thing. Where we, when we get into self-pity, we lose sight of the origin and goal Self-pity is occupation with self, so we lose sight of the real goal, which is God. And it's not an appeal to anything else but God alone. And so shall we be. If in suffering, even when we fear and doubt at the beginning, that we pause, pray, read, and then seek clarity. There's a whole program. It's really a drama of God's salvation history throughout all the mankind. We find ourselves in the church, which is a unique age, and you yourself are a unique saint, believer, priest, in that church in the body of Christ. And God has a plan specifically for you that is not, exact, not the same, in some ways the same, but not the same as for others. What your past is, your DNA, your environment, your bringing up, your parents, whatever. All the things that go into making your personality, which is far too many things and far too complex for anyone to comprehend but God, makes you unique and different. And God has a unique and different plan for you. 
And so to look at others and say, well, what about them? What about their suffering? What about their ease and comfort while I'm going through this? Why are they getting delivered and I'm not? God says, look, is, is, are they you? You think I made a bunch of widgets in the church and you're all exactly the same? Like Mormons? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they seem the same to me. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're all unique. And we have to have the courage to face this life with God alone. Now, not completely alone. That's a whole other class. Because we face it together. We pray for one another. We support one another. We encourage one another. Keep your eyes open to the needs of others in prayer and in real time. Because this life isn't just about you. But there's certain things that you have to go through that is that are about you. About your growth with God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all you are. Thank you for these words that are in your word. Thank you that through them you speak to us. Words that have been written thousands of years ago. In the case of the Psalms, many thousands of years ago. And yet here they are right before us, as you are before us, unchanging. Our God, our Father, the one who has loved us so much that He gave, you gave your Son that son, that precious son, who you didn't think too costly to save us, that you gave him, and he suffered in ways that we can't possibly imagine. And yet still, therefore, we look to him this day, this day forward. From the rest of the hours of this day, as you've given us one day at a time to live, and to pick it up again tomorrow. But to do so today... In the few hours we have left, if you were to come back today, this would be our last day. And that we would walk with you in light of your truth and by the power of your spirit. And if any of us are suffering, Father, remind us of these words in your word and encourage all of us to pray for that one who know and to continue to pray for one another for all of us are going to suffer over and over, from time to time, by your will. And may we look to each other and pray for each other and support one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we'll take our offering at this time. And sorry, I went a little bit over. I'll pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give to your, to your ministry. It's your ministry. It's not ours. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give, to be gracious. And we thank you, Father, for your continued support and through your people. We ask that you bless this offering to your name. In Christ's name, amen.
So the batteries in this thing last two weeks. <laughs> they do. I know this. So we buy them in bulk. They're cheap. And, uh, and I write down when I change out the batteries. And I changed out the batteries two weeks ago. So I got all mad at my microphone. It was my phone. <laughs> if you leave yourself a note, you have to read it. That's a all right. Let's uh, close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Closing moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. Anyone listening, if you are listening, if you haven't believed in Christ, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, who become a man who took upon himself on the cross at Calvary your sins and mine. He is judged in your stead. If you believe upon him, you will be saved. The offer of salvation is an offer of grace. You accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you will become a child of God. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again on the third day, you are destined for heaven to live with God forever. It is a great gift. Believe in him and be saved. Thank you, Father, for all things. In Christ's name, amen. Oh, <laughs>